You see, Forbes is remembered as the man who coined the phrase, he who dies with the most toys wins. You see, his life ambition was to fill his earthly cup with countless material possessions. And evidently for him, this was the pursuit and the sum of happiness. Of course, the sobering lesson that Forbes learned upon his death was that he who dies with the most toys dies. And when we die and stand before the Lord, all of our earthly riches and pursuits and investments will mean zero, zip, nada in the eyes of God. Everything gets left behind. Jesus said in Matthew 11, or excuse me, Matthew 16, 26, for what's going to profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? In other words, our material gains on earth have absolutely no value nor gain when it comes to our eternity. And so therefore, as followers of Christ, we'd be wise to invest our lives in things that carry over into eternity, yes? Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 says, if then you have been raised with Christ, <coughs> excuse me, seek the things that are, what? Above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things that are above, not on things on earth. Friends, I just want to tell you, we ought to cling tightly to this exhortation, especially as believers living in Western culture. Why? Because our culture preaches the idea that long-term happiness and joy comes from money, fame, power, pleasure, prestige. And if we're not careful, like Forbes, we can easily be enticed by this false narrative. I've been there. I think we all have been there, right? We begin fixing our eyes on empty, meaningless pursuits that will not satisfy and will inevitably fade away. Not to mention it's going to damage our relationship with God in the process. It's for this reason, Matthew 6, 24, Jesus said, No one can serve two masters, for you either hate one and love the other. You will either be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And so all this to say, God has a better, more fulfilling way of doing life. And this morning, as we continue our study in the book of James, we're going to learn more about the connection between our faith and our financial position. And in doing so, we're going to be reminded of this important truth. And it's this, the wise seek eternal rewards over earthly riches. And so with that, I'm going to pray one more time before we hop into God's word and take a look at what James has to say. So let's bow our heads one more time. God, thank you again for the opportunity to open up your word this morning. And God, I do echo the prayers that have already been prayed this morning. And I pray that over, over our time now that I would get out of your way, that your Holy Spirit would speak through me through the power of your word, to your people. And God, that we would leave here changed according to your will. And that we would give you glory and not ourselves. Commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so before we jump into today's passage, let's just briefly review the purpose for the book of James. We're only a couple of weeks into the book. So in essence, the book of James is explains what practical Christian living looks like. In fact, some have called this book the Proverbs of the New Testament, and for good reason. You see, just like the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament, James provides some godly wisdom for everyday life. And he does it in, in a straightforward way, such a straightforward way, that as soon as he's done kind of making his point on one subject, he just moves on to the next subject. 
In other words, you don't find James mincing words, beating around the bush, overemphasizing his points. Simply put, if you want a straight shooting, no holds barred, black and white testimonial on how to have a living, visible, productive faith in a fallen world, the book of James is for you. Very similar to the Sermon on the Mount, actually. Now, James was the leader of the Jerusalem church, who at the time of this letter were scattered, were dispersed all throughout the Roman world because of persecution and mistreatment. And so beyond just being a letter of practical Christian living, James also wrote to encourage the Jerusalem church, the Jewish Christian church, with confidence and hope and strength to endure their trials. In this case, trials concerning money. And so let's begin by looking at the whole passage, just a few verses, and then we'll kind of break it down a bit. It's James chapter 1, verses 9 through 12. It reads this. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So church, if there is a message that gets thrown to us 10, 000, in 10,000 different seductive voices, it's the message that earthly riches will satisfy. We see this message written on billboards, on the highway, aired on commercials on TV, posted as advertisements in our news feeds, sung about in some of the most popular songs we listen to. And because this message is so prevalent, it's easy for us to become preoccupied with pursuing it, even though we instinctively know it's not going to bring us any satisfaction. I've heard it said that we're like that donkey that has the carrot extended before it on a stick. The donkey sees the carrot and wants the carrot, so the donkey moves toward the carrot, but the carrot moves too. The carrot is always there, promising to fill the appetite, but what it promises, it does not deliver. See, on the contrary, James gives us a way of living that promises to deliver, both in this life and in the life to come. You see, many within the scattered Jewish Christian church were experiencing financial hardship because of their faith in Christ, inevitably leading to discouragement. And so James purposed to encourage these believers by offering them an eternal perspective on their position. And he does so by giving them three responses to their suffering in relation to earthly wealth. Responses that provide you and I with some encouragement as well. Do you guys want some encouragement this morning? You don't sound super convincing, but we try that again. You know, it's always better the first time. Do you guys want some encouragement this morning? Yeah. That's better, but not as good as if you did it the first time. So let's jump in by looking at the first response that James offers, and it's this. Rejoice in your exalted position. That's what he tells the church. Rejoice in your exalted position. Look again at verse 9. He says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. exaltation. See, a story is told of a rich man who was disturbed to find a fisherman sitting lazily beside his boat. And he asked, why aren't you out there fishing? And the fisherman replied, because I've caught enough fish for today. And then the rich man said, well, why don't you catch more fish than you need? And the fisherman replied, what would I do with them? And the rich man answered, you can earn more money and buy a better boat and you can go deeper and catch more fish. You could purchase nylon nets and catch even more fish and make more money. And soon, you'd have a fleet of boats and be rich like me. And then the fisherman asked, 
well, then what I, what I do? And the rich man replied, you can sit down and enjoy life. And then the fisherman calmly looked out to sea and said, what do you think I'm doing now? You see, church, the biggest difference between the rich man and the fisherman was that the fisherman was content with his position. Though he was not rich, nor living in excess, he recognized his present blessings and rejoiced accordingly. Well, in many ways, this illustrates James' initial point. You see, that word lowly represents the poverty-stricken church. One commentator noted, because they were economically low, they were low in the eyes of the world, and no doubt, in most instances, low in their own eyes. Their poverty produced a lowliness of mind. However, rather than lament their low, low social position, James encouraged them to laud their high spiritual position. Because that use of the word brother was an encouraging reminder to the Jerusalem church that they belonged to the family of God and were beneficiaries of all the spiritual blessings that come with being a child of God. Look at what Romans 8, 17 through 18 says. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share his glory, we must also share his suffering. Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory that he's going to reveal to us later. You see, despite their current suffering, James encouraged the church to boast, to rejoice, to take pride in the privileged position that they had in Christ. You know, generally speaking, Scripture condemns having a prideful spirit, yes? In fact, pride is the root cause of most, if not all, sinful attitudes and actions. Time and time again, we're warned that pride goes before destruction. However, there is a type of holy pride that Scripture condones. Now, just to be clear, it's not a holier-than-thou pride. I'm better than you, and you heathen and pagan filth. Not that. But rather, it's a gentle, selfless pride that finds satisfaction and joy and encouragement and hope in having a personal relationship with the living God. It's a pride that rejoices in the knowledge of 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen race and a royal priesthood and a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You know, when I was a young whippersnapper, I used to own a basketball t-shirt with the words, pain is temporary, pride is forever, written on the front. And I was in pain a lot when I played basketball because I stunk. But anyway, the point of the message was that being on the winning team is often a hard and painful process. But in the end, it's worth it. Well, the same is true with being a child of God, church. In the Christian life, we're going to experience trials and hardships of many kinds. It just comes with the package of, being, of living in a sinful, fallen world. It is what it is. However, we also have the blessed assurance of being on the winning team. And one of the amazing benefits of being on the winning team is that God will use every trial for our good and his glory if we receive them properly. If we receive them properly. Remember what Pastor Dan preached on a couple of weeks ago? Or no, Pastor Dave, one of the other guys preached on it a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> There's the only other two pastors here, so it was one of those two. But anyway, James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. 
Dear brothers and sisters, so this is how he kind of begins his letter, when troubles come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. So you have a choice in the matter here. You need to consider it an opportunity for great joy. Why? For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. Let it grow. Let it grow. So Sorry, my mind. But anyway, for when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. You see, for those who know and love God and are part of his family, he's going to take their earthly pain and transform it for an eternal purpose. He will use it to make them more like Jesus, which is reason to rejoice in and of itself. But likewise, in light of being socially and economically poor, another reason to rejoice now listen, this is like crazy backwards thinking from the world, but it's true. Another reason to rejoice is that a person in this low position is actually more open to the presence and power of God. James, Look at James uh, verses 9 and 10. So let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. You see, church, to be a rich person, especially if you're a believer, actually puts you in a precarious position. Why? Because the rich often rely on their money and possessions to get them through a problem, while the poor have a deeper dependence on the Lord to meet their needs. It's as simple as that. You see, unless you're disciplined in your faith, being rich can actually serve as a spiritual setback. In fact, it can be downright dangerous to your spiritual life. That's why the Bible talks about money and richness a lot. Not a sin to be rich, but there's warnings. Look at 1 Timothy 6.17. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Now, just to be clear, again, Scripture does not teach that we should aim to be economically poor. Everybody get out of here and quit your jobs and rely on, on the Lord to provide. That would be contrary to Scripture where we're told to work. Okay? But nor does Scripture teach that we should aim or that our primary focus should be to be economically rich, as if, as if that's the be-all, end-all. In fact, Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9, gives a balanced approach. It says, give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Why? Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who's the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. Church, the point is that we shouldn't allow our wealth or lack thereof to negatively impact our worship and relationship with God. If anything, we should allow it to drive us closer to God. Now, I don't know if you guys have noticed lately, but gas prices are up. Food prices are up. Utility prices are up. Basically, everything is up except for the 99 cent Arizona iced tea. Thank you, Arizona. They care about the man. In fact, the only thing that seems to be going down lately is our spirits. Let's face it, we're all feeling the weight of inflation on our finances. We've all had to make sacrifices, find ways to cut back on spending. We've all felt discouragement at the state of our economy. It's like, you're filling up the, I was filling up my truck last week. I was like crying. I'm like, <laughs> but church, 
me just give you a perspective that's hard to grapple with, but it is what it is, and it's biblical, so we got to take it for what it is. Instead of lamenting over this economic trial, you know, there's that old saying, what's the sense of complaining? No one's listening anyway. What if we started looking at it from a biblical perspective? Stay with me. I'm preaching as much to myself as I am to you guys. What if we embrace this trial as an opportunity to trust and depend on the Lord and just see how he's going to provide? You know, for some of us in this room, it's, you're really taking hits and you're really not sure how you're going to pay the bills next week because of gas prices. But I would argue that probably most of us in this room, we still know how we're going to pay our bills. We're just really inconvenienced right now with, with the gas prices and everything else. And so rather than complain that we're maybe not living life as comfortably as we once were, what if we just embrace this trial as a means for God to strengthen our faith? Because that's really what James was trying to tell the church. You know, there's this general principle in life that there is no growth without discomfort. Ask any bodybuilder the reason why they spend hours upon hours painfully picking things up and putting them down is because they want to grow, but it's painful. Same is true with our faith. Church, our faith will not grow one inch without pain. It won't. 1 Peter 1.7 says these trials are going to show that your faith is genuine. And if your faith isn't genuine, well, those trials are going to help refine your faith to get it to that point. You see, the poor believers within the Jerusalem church needed to be reminded that God would use their economic trial to make them more like Christ. And the rich within the Jerusalem church needed to be warned that their wealth can actually prevent them from becoming more like Christ. In either case, the overarching truth still remains. Whether you have a little to your name or a lot to your name, you, church, have incomparable riches if you are a child of the name above all names. And so therefore, rejoice in your exalted position and resist the urge to find satisfaction in temporal things that are inevitably going to fade away. Jeremiah 9, verses 23 and 24. I'm so glad I came across this verse because, man, it's money. And it, huh, No pun intended. And it says this, Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him boast in this. Listen. Let him who boasts boast in this. That he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, who practices steadfast love, justice, righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Church, I'm just going to tell you, we all know this, preaching to the choir, but we all have to be reminded of it. We know that at the end of it, we can't trust in material things. We can't trust in our bank accounts, our retirement accounts, or anything like that. They're not bad to have. They're good to have and wise. Be wise with your money. We obviously understand that. But we can't, like, they change, right? God is the same what? Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. We always have him. Better to rely on him than anything else. Amen? This leads us to the second response. Reject your pursuit of earthly possessions. Look at verse 11. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. A preacher was moving toward the end of his lively sermon. And with a growing crescendo, he said, This church, just like the crippled man, needs to get up and walk. 
And the congregation responded, let her walk, preacher, let her walk. And then the pastor added, this church, just like Elijah on Mount Carmel, has got to run. And the congregation responded, let her run, preacher, let her run. And then the pastor continued, this church has got to mount up on wings like eagles and fly. And the congregation responded, let her fly, preacher, let her fly. And then the pastor said, now if this church is going to fly, it's going to take money. And the congregation responded, let her walk, preacher, let her walk. Church, money is a funny thing, isn't it? It's a funny thing. It's something that we work awfully hard to get, but are often very reluctant to give. Even though, again, we all instinctively know that holding on to it won't bring us any lasting happiness. Someone once said, money won't make you happy, but everybody wants to find out for themselves. So true. Most people end up having to learn this lesson the hard way. I uh, actually just got done reading a book called Dylan, Lennon, Alice, and Jesus. You heard me right. Dylan, Lennon, Al- or Lennon, Dylan, Alice, and Jesus. It's a book by Pastor Greg Laurie out in California. And it's kind of this like spiritual biography of rock and roll and told these stories of, of, of these people within the rock and roll world uh, who have, they, they, they reached the height of heights only to find themselves totally and completely empty. Some turning to the Lord, others not. But it's a great reminder that it's like you just kind of learn from their example that you could have it all and not have anything at all. Good book, by the way. That's a free one. I'm not, no, I'm not giving it to you for free, but it's a free you know, endorsement, if you will. But friends, we can save ourselves a lot of discouragement and resentment if we simply listen to the words of Scripture. James reminded the Jerusalem church that their joy shouldn't be measured by their acquisition of earthly riches because just as the grass fades away, so too will their wealth. Psalm 49, verses 16 and 17 says, Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases, for when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will will not go down after him. In other words, we shouldn't be overawed or overly impressed or depressed for that matter when the rich get richer and build upon their earthly kingdoms because when they die, all of their wealth will be left behind and will lose all of its value. And so therefore, instead of spending our lives in pursuit of earthly possessions, our aim should be the pursuit of heavenly prizes. Jesus said, in Matthew 6, 19-21, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in where? Heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Randy Alcorn wisely noted. He said, This life is just a dot. And from that dot extends a line. You guys see that picture Okay. I mean, if you can't, what what are you going to do? You can turn around. It's on the screen behind you, I guess. And that line is going to go out forever. We all live in the dot. But if we're smart, we're not going to live for the dot. We're going to live for the line with the people of God. God who will live, live forever, people who will live forever, his word which will live forever. So live your life now while you're in the dot in light of the line investing in the line because that's what's going to matter after you die. 
You know, it's funny. We, we spend, by we, I just mean in general, we, the people, America, whatever, we spend a considerable amount of our lives investing in the last little sliver of that dot, retirement. And again, I'm not, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be wise and try to save for retirement. That's all, that's all good. But what I'm saying is, like, there are people that the primary objective of their life is get to that golden years of retirement where they can collect seashells on the seashore for the rest of their, their life. Neglecting all of the wine along the way. Church, we would be wise not to be those people. Proverbs 23, 4 and 5 instructs us, do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it's gone, for suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. And this leads us to the third response. Remember your eternal prize. Look at verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. This past week, I learned that the Greek word for blessed is makarios, which interestingly enough, makarios, which interestingly enough, was the name of an island off of Greece, the Makarios Island. And concerning this island, Dr. Tony Evans notes, he said it was known as a blessed island because it was self-contained. The residents didn't need to leave the island in order to get their needs met. The island offered everything that they needed. The natural resources of the blessed island were so thick and rich and fruitful and productive that everything they needed to enjoy their lives was already built in. The inhabitants of the island were self-sustained and self-contained without ever having to run to another island to get their needs met. Church, one of the reasons why we're not experiencing, I believe, the full measure of God's blessing in our lives is because we are running to other islands to meet our needs when everything we need for enjoyment and satisfaction and sustainability is found in the island of the Lord. We run to the island of money, the island of cars, the island of houses and jobs and relationships, the island of whatever earthly pleasure we're chasing after when the real blessing comes by staying with the Lord, and experiencing and enjoying and, and exerting his goodness in our lives and in the lives of other people. The discouraged church needed to be reminded that blessings come to believers who remain steadfast under trials. The type of steadfastness that James had in mind wasn't merely hunkering down and weathering the storm. Instead, he was speaking to the steadfastness of a believer who stayed close to the Lord and maintained their godly Christian character during the storm. In other words, he's referring to a believer who stayed on the island with God when times got tough and trusted him to meet their needs. The church needed to be reminded that God is going to reward their faithfulness. And in this case, the reward is the crown of life. Now, some people misunderstand the crown of life to be a reference to eternal life, which isn't the case. Keep in mind that James was already writing to born-again believers. Their eternal salvation was already secured the moment when they placed their faith in the person and work of Jesus. Now, granted, it's a good reminder. I mean, like, look, no matter how bad things get down here, we are promised the free gift of eternal life to those who believe in Jesus, and that is motivation to keep on going, like, this is not the end. But that's not what James had in mind here. You see, the crown of life is one of five different heavenly rewards or crowns specifically reserved 
for believers who persevere and maintain their godly witness through trials. David Jeremiah notes, any believer who has kept the faith when it was costly to do so, anyone who has suffered, endured, persevered, and encouraged others will receive the crown of life. Now, other than it being a special set-apart reward, we don't know a ton about it other than it's there. And that should be encouragement to us. Jesus said in Revelation 2.10, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. You see, James' overall purpose was to encourage the church to faithfully endure their trials, in this case, economic trials, knowing that God would be faithful to reward them for eternity. And church, that is our encouragement for us today as well. Whatever trial or economic hardship you may be facing today, I want to encourage you, like James, to face it with an eternal perspective, knowing that God will be faithful to carry you, he's going to be faithful to conform you, provide for you, and reward your faithful perseverance. I love what Paul said in Romans 8.18. He said, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Amen? And this leads us back to today's truth to remember. The wise will seek eternal rewards over earthly riches. Now, friends, I want to close by, re- by reminding you once again that the book of James was written to believers. And unless you're a believer, you're not going to have the power to apply anything I said to your life this morning. The good news, of course, is that could all change right here, right now. The Bible teaches that God has a very special reward to those who seek him, and it's a reward that you don't need to wait for. You You could have right now. It's the free gift of eternal life. Jesus said in John 5.24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but it is passed from death to life. The Bible teaches that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And as a result of our sin, our relationship with God is broken. And unless our relationship is restored, when we die, we must go to a place of punishment that the Bible calls hell. Because God is holy, we sang about his holiness, and he cannot have anything to do with sin. But the good news is that 2,000 years ago, God, in his great love for us, became a man in Jesus. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross, taking the burden of our sins upon himself. Three days later, he rose again. And in doing so, he provided a way for you and I to receive forgiveness for our sins and be saved and have eternal life. So listen closely as I make my descent here. This is important. You can leave here this morning with your sins forgiven and with the assurance of eternal life by believing in Jesus. And at that very moment of belief, not only will you be forgiven, but you will be given the power that you need through his Holy Spirit to endure the trials that we're talking about today. You can't have the power unless you have the person of Jesus. And friend, your heart may never be as tender to the gospel as it is right now. And so if you've never placed your faith in Christ, I want to encourage you to do it today. Jesus said in Revelation 3.20, Here I am, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Jesus wants to save you and have fellowship with you. And all you need to do is let him in. It doesn't matter how dirty or how out of order your house may be. Jesus wants to come in. He's going to save you first, and then he's going to help you little by little, room by room, clean things up along the way. That's called a life with Jesus. It doesn't happen overnight. 
your salvation does. But the process of making you more like Jesus is a lifelong process. But it all begins with faith. And so if you'd like to place your faith in Jesus this morning, you can do so right now. We're all going to bow our heads. We're going to pray, wrap things up. But in the quietness of your seat, you can pray something like this. Let's bow our heads and pray. Dear God, I know that I'm a sinner. And I ask for your forgiveness. I believe that Jesus is your son. I believe that he died for my sin and that you raised him to life. And I want to trust him as my Savior and follow him as my Lord from this day forward. Guide my life and help me to do your will. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Listen, if you prayed to receive Jesus this morning, be sure to mark it on your Connect slip or, or, or either see myself or one of the other pastors today. But if you mark it on your slip, one of us will be in touch with you so we can follow up with you and celebrate with you. I'd also encourage you to come forward after the closing song. There's some packets of information here. They're free to take. That'll get you started in your relationship with Jesus. But church, for, for the vast majority of us here, we have that relationship with Jesus, but maybe our priorities are just a little bit out of whack. And so I just want to encourage you as we sing this closing song to not build your life upon earthly riches, but to build it upon Jesus and his word and eternal rewards.